I want to continue in the series that we started a couple weeks ago on the book of Revelation, and we're in, the ch- in chapter 2, and we're still talking about the seven letters to the seven churches. Um, and this is a very exciting study um, as we listen to what the Lord has to say to us in this, uh, in this study. There's a lot of good instruction for us and a lot of encouragement for us to receive, and, uh, and I hope that you're able to pick it out with me. Larry, if you'd throw up that overhead, we'll... We'll use that again today, and hopefully that'll, that'll help us. Uh, but today we're going to talk about the, the church of Smyrna. This is the second letter um, that Jesus wrote to the Apostle John. And uh, we're going to just jump right into this because we've been going through all of this in the past. And these are the, the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And uh, so we're talking about Smyrna today. Let's read what Jesus says to him. Revelations chapter 2. You might want to open your Bible because we'll be there most of the time. Revelations chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. It says, To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These are the words of him who was the last and the first, who died and came to life. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you're going to unravel, unravel to us and reveal to us today. God, I pray that we discern properly what you are indicating. We pray, God, that we would hear your voice and we would be careful, Lord, that we would give the right instruction, that we would understand the right interpretation of what this is saying to the churches then and today. We thank you for this. Open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the church of Smyrna, uh, the address in the church is to the angel in the church of Smyrna, right? So he's talking to the angel. Now, we've said last week the angel represents the pastor or the leadership and is applicable to every person in the church. There is not a message that God gives to any particular person that another person can't learn from. That's the beauty of God's word, is that it may be written for a certain era, it may be written in a certain time frame, but yet God's word is everlasting, right? And it's alive. And it's moving. And whenever I get into God's word, you can anticipate and you can expect to hear something and learn something from God. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. And um, it's, all for, it's for all of us. Even though it's written to this particular angel, we're all going to glean from it. Let's talk about Smyrna for a minute. Let's talk about the city itself. The city of Smyrna was a large, beautiful, and proud city. And uh, it was the center of learning and culture in the area. And it was, it was very proud of its standing as a city. In fact, Smyrna um, was so outstandingly beautiful that it claimed itself as, we claim Charlevoix as Charlevoix the Beautiful, Smyrna was claimed to be the glory of Asia. They were just that good about themselves, and they were that prosperous, and they had so much going for it. It was a good city, and it was beautiful, and it was proud. And it was rich in trade, um, the city was stood at the center of the road which served the valley of the river, a Hermas, and all the trade of that valley passed through Smyrna. If, if it, when you looked at the, the, the map, all of the 
cities that we're talking about are on a trade route. And they're all major cities. They're all majorly important to the particular area that they're in. Uh, but Smyrna was especially wealthy, and its commercial um, interests were widespread. And um, they had uh, a great trade there in their imports and exports, and they specialized in their wines. So they had a, a wine industry in Smyrna that made them very popular of the time because wine was very important in the culture at that time. Spiritually, um, Smyrna was also a very spiritual city. And we're going to find that spiritual cities and religious cities don't always mean godly cities. We can be very spiritual, we can be very religious, and not be very godly. Amen? Anybody know what I'm talking about on that one? Um, Smyrna, um, they were deeply committed to idolatry and the worship of the Roman emperor. Uh, in fact, one of the cities in Smyrna called the Golden Street, the, on that city, on that street stood many magnificent temples to Greek gods. I don't even know these gods. Cybele, Apollo, Asclepius, Aphrodite, I've heard of that one, and a great temple to Zeus. So they were very ingrained with religion and spirituality. But at the time, the worship of the Greek gods were kind of dying out, and the real focus was, was really moving towards emperor focus. And so they were now focusing more on worship of the emperor and even dead emperors in the past. In uh, 196 B.C., sorry, in 196 B.C., um, they built the first temple to Dea Roma, which is the goddess of Rome. And uh, it's the spiritual symbol of the Roman Empire. And uh, they, they really focused on people. And they focused on the pride that they have in their political allegiance and their civic pride to their government and to their emperors. In 23 AD, Smyrna won the privilege over 11 other cities of the time to build the first temple to worship the emperor, Tiberius Caesar. Smyrna was a leading city in the Roman cult of emperor worship. And that's very important as we see a little bit later why, that, why Jesus addresses himself a little bit differently than based upon their, their emperor worship. Under the Roman Empire Domitian in 81 through 96 AD, he was the first emperor to demand worship under the title Lord. So Domitian was, in fact, he was the Roman Empire that's given to us that he's the one that banished John, the revelator, to the Isle of Patmos. It was under that time that, um, I, that John was, was, was banished, and because, probably because John wouldn't bow to him. Probably because John wouldn't, wouldn't worship him as he's demanding to be worshipped. Caesar worship, after this time, became compulsory. It wasn't just the nice thing to do. It was the thing to do. And if you didn't worship Caesar, this is where the persecution came. If you didn't worship Caesar, you couldn't buy or sell. You couldn't do things. You couldn't survive. You had to go underground in some cases. And as a Christian, if you were to declare yourself a Christ follower, you probably were um, put in prison. Um, you could be killed or severely persecuted. It was not a good time to be a Christian. It was a hard time. They gave the Christians kind of an out. And this is something that I find fascinating. They didn't necessarily require that the, that the Christian 
necessarily give up in their worship of Christ. What they did say, though, is that if you as a Christian, one time a year, if you would offer a pinch of a sacrifice, a pinch of incense, and burn it before Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, you could receive a certificate that would allow you to buy and sell. So it wasn't really that it was saying it's an all or nothing thing. It was just bow your knee once to Caesar. Once a year, you bow your knee to Caesar, and then you can go on being a Christian. So now the Christians have a choice. What are they going to do? What would you do? Would you bow your knee once to Obama? (laughs) Would you bow your knee once to Caesar so that you could buy and sell and continue your life? Or would you say, no, I have a holy conviction about this that I'm going to call no man Lord. Jesus is Lord, and I'm going to stick to my guns, and I'm going to stay in a time of clear allegiance to Jesus. You see, so the persecution that came on Smyrna, maybe why, it was, why we're going to find out that it's so sweet to Jesus is because these men and women had a choice. And the choice wasn't that they were supposed to give up a lot, just a pinch, just a little bit of offering once a year to Caesar, and all of a sudden, I'm good. But what does that mean to the Lord? Man, that, makes me, that, makes, that challenges my life so much and what I live and how I live in my society. How much am I willing to give to society to maintain my reputation in the society? And am I pleasing the Lord when I do that? Help us, Lord. Help us. The church of Smyrna, we don't have that much information about the church in Smyrna. There really wasn't that much given, but we're probably, we're presum- presumably, it was founded during Paul's ministry while he was in Ephesus around that same period of time. But we don't know much about it, but we can assume it was a faithful church to the point that Jesus had nothing to hold against them. Jesus, this, we'll find that this is one of two churches that Jesus did not have a rebuke for. Good church. Bad time to live. Good church. Let's talk about Christ. The description of Christ is the first and the last who died and came to life. Revelations 2, chapter 8. These are the words of him who was the first and the last who died and came to life. Who is the first and the last? What does this description mean? What does it mean? This, first of all, it's taken from the first chapter of the way that John was revealed. um, It was revealed to John that Jesus was the first and the last. Revelations chapter 1, verse 17. It says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And with this description, Jesus is speaking of his eternal nature. He was there at the beginning. He was with God at the beginning. And he will be with God at the end. Nothing predated him and nothing is going to outlast him. First and the last, he, is, he, he, he is, stands alone in that regard. He and God and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, stand alone in that. Nothing else can make that claim. But there's more to that. He said that he also is the one who died and came to life. Now, this is why this is so important in the age or in the time of Smyrna. Remember, they were into emperor worship. They were into worshiping people. And Jesus declares himself to say, I was before emperor Tiberius Caesar, and I will be after him. I will be after all of them. They come and go and they die. But Jesus came as a sacrifice 
and he rose again, and he's still living. He is the living God. He, came, he died, and he came to life, and that's very important. It may not be highlighted a whole lot here in the Scripture, but for those believers in Smyrna, if they didn't really believe that Jesus died and came back to life, then they're wasting their life. True? They're wasting their life. So are you and I. If you and I don't really believe that Jesus is alive today, then we might as well go live with the world. So our belief structure needs to be the fact that we really believe this. We really appreciate the fact that Jesus is alive today. And he's alive to make intercession for me with the Father. And the Holy Spirit is here, and he's living in me, and he's bringing me joy and peace and a hope, even in the time of intense persecution. Amen. That should give us some excitement. <laughs> Something in us should rise up and say, thank you, Jesus, for that. Otherwise, let's just be a party. <laughs> Jesus is clearly alive, and, and with that, we are comforted. We're comforted. What's the condition of the church? Spiritually rich, yet known as the persecuted church. The persecuted church. I don't want to be known as a persecuted church. I like to be a rich church. Jesus says in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Once again, just like in the letter to the church of Ephesus, Jesus is telling them they know, he knows about their condition. I know your deeds. I know what you're doing, church of Smyrna. I know your situation. There's nothing hidden from me. I know exactly what's going on, even though through the times that you may feel unknown and uncared for. I know. I'm aware of it all. I know that you're afflicted, and I know that you have lots of problems. Jesus sees their afflictions, and, and most importantly, he understands what it means to be afflicted and slandered against, of all people. Doesn't Christ understand this? There is no hardship, nothing that you are going through that Jesus hasn't understood or gone through before you did. That's such a comfort to me. That's so nice to know that God understands my afflictions. He understands where I'm at. He understands my tough times. He understands that. There's nothing here that he doesn't know. He understands about poverty. God, Jesus understands poverty. Remember, he was in heaven first. <laughs> What's in heaven? What's heaven like? Heaven has got to be unbelievably prosperous. There is nothing of want in heaven, yet Jesus willingly gave all that up and came down to be a mere mortal, to live a mere man's life in poverty. He didn't come to a king's house. He came to a carpenter's home. He worked for a living. He, had, he knew what it was like to work with his hands. He knew what it was like to probably not have everything he wanted, but I'm sure he had everything he needed. Amen? Good lesson for us as well in that. So the point is that Jesus understood all that. He understood all of the conditions that they were in. He says that the Christians in Smyrna lived in utter poverty while others around them were rich in abundance. See, that's kind of like us too, right? I mean, we look around us and we see all the money. We see all the fame and glory around us, but yet maybe we're not in experiencing some of that. You know, as much as I would love to have a really, 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 really big boat, I'll never afford a really, really, really big boat. So let's just not worry about that really, really, really big boat. I mean, let's just get reality here, okay? There are some things that I'm just not going to have, but that doesn't mean I can't have joy. It doesn't mean that I can't enjoy the things that I do have. And, and yet, we sometimes get misconstrued in that a little bit. 
even though that they were living in a place of abundance, they were not just limited. In many cases, they were, re, they were um, refused because of their persecution, because of their stand for Christ. Um, wealth at that time came through the worship of the emperor and their ability to gain wealth. It did not come by being a Christian. And, um, but yet these men and these women of this church were not willing to compromise their conviction in order to gain a temporary relief. Um, their choice, their choice was to joyfully accept the abuse from the world to maintain their position in a relationship with Jesus, even at great loss. Think about that. It was their choice. They could have offered that pinch of incense, and they could have played the game with society. They could have gone that path to be able to live and even be prosperous, possibly. But because of their allegiance to Jesus, because they knew that they did not want to displease the one that loved them and that they loved, that they offered a choice not to do that. The name Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, which is a sweet-smelling perfume used in embalming dead bodies. Myrrh was not a, um, it was a beautiful incense, but it was purpose, basically, it was around death. The name Smyrna means fragrant when crushed. Fragrant when crushed. How, sometimes sometimes you, you have to crush something before you can smell it. You know, garlic needs to be crushed, and then all of a sudden you get a big whiff of garlic. That may not be so fragrant, but it's a good example. Um, you know, there's some plants, that, some fruits, that not until they're crushed do you smell and enjoy the fragrance of them. And, and I think that this is something maybe we don't understand as our society today. We don't understand the requirement and the need for persecution. We don't understand it. We don't see it. We don't experience it. Thank goodness we don't experience it. But yet, the choice that the Smyrnian people made to accept and keep Jesus as so important in their life that they would not accept any level of compromise, no matter how small, gave them a very sweet fragrance when they were crushed to the Lord. You've got to look at that. You've got to, think, you've got to look at, think of God looking down at his people and saying, man, I am so proud of you. I am so pleased with you. All you had to do was just do a little bit of a compromise, but yet you stuck to your guns and you stuck to me and you are holding me as a prime example of faithfulness. And you know, that is a sweet-smelling fragrance to the Lord. Same thing when he looks at you. This morning, if you're struggling in some areas and if you're struggling with some things of compromise, maybe it's in the business world, maybe it's in, you know, should I... Um, cut a corner here or there or should I not do such a good job and should I you know, take an indulgence here or there but you know you say no I'm a Christian no I, I stand for something and I'm going to let my I'm going to let my doctrine speak from my, through my faith and my words and my actions and you know that makes you a sweet smelling fragrance to the Lord amen there's good in that there's power in that there's strength in that and, and, but they, and, and these were not the only, this was not the only church. And, and it's important that we recognize that they were not the only church. There were other churches, Paul mentions here, and he reads to the Hebrews that, that other churches as well suffered great persecution while they were living out their lives in an uncompromising nature to Jesus. Let's read Hebrews chapter 10. You can read it on the screen, if you can, or you can turn it in your Bible. But it says, Remember those early days after you had received the light, when you endured a great conflict full of suffering, 
Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Man, what a great passage. Now, the question is, are we that way? Can we claim that? Are we living our life in that way so that we understand what it is to be persecuted and tested, but yet faithful? Are we that sweet-smelling fragrance? 2 Corinthians verse four, chapter 4, 8, we are pressed and on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We are given the promises of the Lord if we will only hold fast. Hold fast to that. I encourage you this morning, hold fast. Do what you're instructed to do in God's word and don't give in to the compromises of this world. No matter how small they may be, don't give up. We can be that sweet-smelling fragrance. We can be that if we would only... And then Jesus goes on to say something even more important um, and more significant. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. Now, this might offer some confusion a little bit. If Jesus sees us in our afflictions and in our poverty, poverty does not equal rich. So what is Jesus talking about? If we're poor, how can we be rich? Well, let's discuss what rich is a little bit. Two ways to define rich. Even though outwardly, they were destitute poor. They were dirt poor. I mean, these people, because they, because they didn't offer that little offering, that little sacrifice, that little incense, they were really poor. I mean, this is why they were called the persecuted church. Maybe we don't, we, maybe we really got to understand that. We've really got to get that bit into us, the fact that this was not a happy time. This was a hard time to be living But yet, Jesus sees that they were rich, even though outwardly they were poor. One writer says this about uh, Smyrna, that they were sweet-smelling Smyrna, yet they were the poorest, the poorest and purest of the seven. In other words, their purity brought them richness. Their purity brought them the richness that Christ calls rich. See, our true wealth, our true wealth is determined by our heart condition more than by our pocketbook condition. How much money do we have? Is that richness? Is that, is that what it's talking about here? Is that what Jesus is talking about? No, not, not at all. He's not talking about their pocketbook because they were poor. But he's talking about their heart. In their heart, they were rich. They were rich. And so are you and I this morning. If you're loving Jesus, no matter what your situation is around you, you're rich. You're rich. Filthy rich, actually. The, the other reason that they were rich is because Jesus said they're rich. Jesus declared them rich. What this is telling me is what Jesus thinks about me is more important than what I think of me. If Jesus says I'm rich, then I'm rich. I don't care what I feel like. I don't care what my situation is. If Jesus declares me as rich, his opinion of me is much more important than my own. In contrast to the church in Laodicea, in Revelation chapter 3, they say, in verse 17, they say that they're rich. You say, in this verse, 
I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, and blind, and naked. So here is the case where the, the Smyrna church, they are poor, but Jesus says they're rich. In Laodicea, they call themselves rich, and Jesus says, no, you're poor. <laughs> so there's obviously, Jesus is looking at something different here than the people are. And uh, I want to look at what Jesus says. I want to focus on what, one, what he says. And, and the problem there to this, because is we, can, we can deceive ourselves very easily, and we do deceive ourselves. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 tells us that, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. In other words, you're good, just don't think you're great. God loves you, just don't think he only loves you. <laughs> he loves everybody, right? So none of us are special here in the, in the, in the sight of God. We're all loved. We're all cherished. We're all his prized possession. We're all his prized possession. So don't put yourself above somebody else because maybe somebody else doesn't look like you look or talk like you or think like you or whatever. Think of you as what you ought to. And when you do that, you are putting yourself in a position where God will say, I know who you are. And and now listen to what I think of you. See, a foolish man will live in a distorted manner thinking that he can live a life that isn't lining up with God's word like the Laodiceans were and thinking that God will allow that in the end. That's a foolish description of what you think of yourself. But a wise man will determine to live according to God's word to his very best with the help and leading of the Holy Spirit and then let Jesus call him righteous. Let Jesus call him holy rather than me calling a self-righteousness or a self-holiness. No, I live my life for Jesus. I surrender to him. I'm all in for Jesus. I'm giving it all to him. I'm giving all of myself to him so that outwardly I may become poor, but inwardly I'm becoming rich because Jesus says you're rich. Amen. But there's an age-old problem, though, that there's a lot of people that, that are slandering God and slandering the people just like what's happening here. Jesus goes on to say that I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. See, this is the problem that was then and it is today. What you claim to be, if you're not living to God's word, what you claim to be, it doesn't mean that you're God. You can be very spiritual. You can be very religious. But if you're not lined up with God's word, you're not what you think you are. They were, claiming that they were calling themselves Jews, but Jesus is saying that they were a synagogue of Satan. Pretty strong words, isn't it, for Jesus to be saying about his Jewish leaders? But, you know, I, I got to wonder if how many times that we that are, can be that way in our, in our own life. I was talking to someone the other day, this, this past week, talking about um, how to get anywhere in our political world today, And I've got to be real careful with the statement, um, but I'll I'll make it carefully. To to gain great worldly success, whether I'm a politician or a movie star or something of that, probably there's been a giving away of the soul. (laughs) Probably they've greased a few palms along the way. Probably they've gone to the point where they've compromised maybe their standards to go with people's approval ratings. And, uh, and can I say that at the same time that that could very possibly happen in the church? 
could I say that a pastor that wants to stand before his people and be liked by him more than uh, respected by a, to be a godly man could also be just as guilty of selling his soul? Can I say that, uh, uh, on the si- by the way, this has no reference to size of a church, okay? But we often look at the big church pastors as being the ones that have compromised. But I got to tell you, there's as many people like me in small churches that can compromise just as much to try to keep the, to try to keep the flock. And, uh, and, and woe to that man. Woe to that pastor or that leader that would do that. And... Uh, so I don't want to be, and uh, I don't want to be accused of the synagogue of Satan. Uh, I, I want to be a godly man, and I want God to see me as a righteous man. And, and therefore, as we speak God's word, I want those that would um, see that and understand that and embrace that. And we do this through love. What I like about Second Timothy so much, and I mentioned this in Sunday school class, is that this is Paul's last letter before Paul is. Um, killed before he's martyred and uh you know whenever i think of someone's last words you got to think they're going to be truth you got to be think they're going to be if i could say one thing i want to tell you this is what i'll tell you and this is what he tells to timothy which is i think read to us as well today in our church let's read this second timothy chapter four the first five verses in the presence of god and of christ jesus who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom i give you this charge Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So Paul is giving Timothy uh, a very direct command to don't compromise the word of God. But at the same time, do it with great patience and do it with careful instruction. Don't rush into it, Timothy. Don't go in with a sledgehammer. Go in carefully, but yet Understand, pray that God will give you the wisdom, the discernment to do it, but yet go in, be patient, careful instruction. He says, For the time will come when people will not put up a sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears wants to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside the myths. But you, Timothy, you pastors today, you leaders today, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. See, if we're going to believe this, and if we're going to live by this, then we have to take God's word for what it means. Not looking for the easy believism stuff. Not looking for this way that I can twist it just a little bit to make it a little bit easier for me to preach and for you to listen to. Let's preach it. Let's teach it. Let's use it for correction, rebuke, and encouragement. Just as what Paul told Timothy to do. And when we do that, you know what we'll do? We'll be blessed. We'll be healthy. We'll be strong. We'll be ready for the Lord to come back. We'll be preparing ourselves as a bride. All right, let's talk about the rebuke. There is none. Beautiful. This church is making it through. This church, for, for, for this situation, is one of two churches that are not having to find the rebuke by Jesus. Um, shouldn't that be the goal of us? Shouldn't that be your goal and my goal, that I would come to Jesus at the end of my day and he would say, Mike, I find no rebuke in you. Congregation, people in this church, I find no rebuke in you. What a great goal to have. What a great goal. We need to live like it. <laughs> we need to do it. One thing to have a goal, next thing you did to do it. All right? So let's look at his command. The command from Jesus is given to us in um, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. It says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, 
The devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. See, this instruction from Jesus is as much of an encouragement as it is a command. He's saying, if you are faithful, if you are faithful to do this, I will give you a crown of life. So it's, it's an encouragement to them as well. As much as a forewarning, he gives a prophetic word that says, you know, guys, you have some, stuff that's, you have some tough stuff coming yet. But don't be afraid about what you're going to suffer. Don't be afraid because I know it. I know what you're going through. See, fear is the absence of having Jesus in our future. And when I look down the road and I don't have Jesus in it, then I get afraid and it becomes very immobilizing and it becomes very difficult for me to, to walk through that because I don't appreciate that Jesus knows what I'm doing. I don't appreciate the fact that, he's, that maybe he's allowing this to happen. In fact, wouldn't you say that God allows everything to happen that happens? However, many things happen to us that are out of our control, okay? Now, the challenge becomes when I have things that are out of my control, like suffering or persecution, I have a choice. I can either choose to fear it. I can either choose, like, have, like an attitude, I can either choose to have a good or a bad attitude about it. The attitude is my choice, not the condition. I can't control the conditions, but I control my attitude. I control if I'm going to have fear or not fear. As difficult as it is, and the reason I'm saying that is because Jesus says we can. So he's given us a choice. Am I going to choose fear, meaning that am I not going to choose that he's really going to keep me in this, or am I going to choose not to have fear? Am I going to choose to have a good attitude about this, or am I going to choose not to have a good attitude about this? Am I going to choose to get better or bitter by the persecutions and the, and the trials that come my way? Proverbs chapter 29 tells us in verse 25, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. Many promises are given to us by the fact that God will protect us. God will protect us. Then he goes on and he says that, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, a couple of interesting things here. First of all, Jesus is telling them beforehand so that when it happens, they're not surprised. Jesus told us, you will have trouble in this world. So don't be surprised when it comes, okay? But yet we have a mindset that once I become saved, that all my troubles flee. Well, let me just tell you the truth. That's not true. You're going to have problems even as a Christian. So let's not be disappointed. Let's not set ourselves up for disappointment and frustration thinking that, well, now that I'm saved, all my problems should go away. That's not true. The truth is you're going to have problems in this world. All right? The other interesting thing about this is that God's aware of all these things, and he knows the enemy's scheming. He knows what's going on there. The question is why? Why would God allow this? Why would God allow this? See, if, if, I, can, if I can control the enemy in the perspective of taking authority over it in the name of Jesus, if I have the power in the name of Jesus to to defeat Satan, then why then is Jesus telling him, telling them that the devil will put some of you in prison for 10 days? See, it doesn't, something doesn't seem to add up here, does it? I mean, if I have the ability to, to declare that the devil's under my feet and I sing all the songs that declare that, but yet the devil has authority to work in my life, there's, let's, let's understand what's going on here. Yes, you do have control and you have the authority over the devil uh, by the blood of Christ. But at the same time, God uses the devil in some cases to bring goodness into our life through persecution and through suffering. 
the purpose of suffering most of the time can be to bring us into purity with him, can bring us into alignment with him. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. And all this, and all this, I'm assuming when he says in all this, what you're talking about, and all this persecution, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So the testing that happens to you is not to tear you down, it's to build Christ up. It's to make Christ rise higher in your life. And sometimes our testing has to come to take us down so Christ can rise. Again, are you getting better or are you getting bitter? Another reason for testing is to make us more like Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in Christ's sufferings in order that we also may share in Christ's glory. Amen? So we are persecuted and tested and tried for purity and then also to make us more like Christ. There's other, there's other references. Romans chapter 8 James chapter 1, this is the, let's read James. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy. (laughs) Why? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Then skipping down to verse 12. Blessed, blessed, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is exactly what Jesus is telling to the church of Smyrna. I will give you the crown of life when you persevere through the testing and the persecution. He's saying the same thing to us today, and it's a blessing for all of us. And here's the best news, is that it's not going to last forever. He says that if I tell you the devil put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, there's lots of discussion over the 10 days. I don't want to get into it. Let me just cut to the bottom line. What this means is that it's not going to be forever. Some say it's 10 years of persecution. Some said it was 10 Roman emperors worth of persecution. Um, I don't know what it was. It doesn't make any difference. What it means to you and I today is that the time of persecution will come to an end. So what you're going through right now, no matter how long it might seem, God's saying, you know what, I know about it. I'm all aware of it, and I have a purpose in it, and it's not going to last forever. And when you come out of it, you're going to come out of it better as a result of it. So therefore, have great joy in it. Have the joy of the Lord in the process of it. It helps us control the fear. It helps us to control the unknowns there because we know that God is faithful. And then he says, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. See, our responsibility in the time of persecution is not to count the days, even though we're tempted to, aren't we? I know how difficult it is. Sometimes we're saying, how much longer can I do this? God, how much longer? I know that. But we need to keep our eyes off that. We need to get our eyes off of that and into, God, I know that there's a time when this is going to end. And I want to come out of this thing proven. I want to come out of this thing pure. I want to come out of this as a golden vessel. You know, um, I learned a lesson when I was in Colorado. I'm afraid of heights. And uh, we were going to go repelling. And, uh, And I... 
was pretty good, I think, of not letting all the kids know how afraid I was. But I was shaken. I mean, I was not, I was kind of not, not wanting to do this. And Cassie was braver than I was. Um, but anyway, I, so I got up there and I, and I got in that repel gear and, you know, I know I'm safe. I mean, they got this rope here that, and I have the ability to control my speed and I'm letting down the, the mountain. And not only that, but I know that there's a guy at the top that if my rope starts to go too fast, like I'm out of control, then he'll stop it. So there's no way I'm going to fall. There's just no way. But yet I'm afraid. And, and so I, I finally edged myself over the edge and I started to go down and I knew enough I didn't look down. I didn't really know if I was 100 feet or 5 feet. I just kept my focus on the rock. And as I was do that, I would bounce out a little bit and go down, bounce out a little bit, down, bounce out. And I worked my way down the, the mountain, and I never, ever knew how high I was. And that what that lesson told me was, man, that's the way I live my life for Jesus. That as long as I keep my eyes on Christ, he's my rock, and every time I'm watching my feet hit that rock, I know that's stationary. I know I've got four feet to go. And that's, I'm not afraid of four feet. And that's all I was looking at was the four feet. And I never saw, I never looked down. So therefore, what that showed me was that I don't care what's going on around me. Life can be totally out of control. But as long as my focus is on Jesus, the rock of my life, I have no reason to fear. Therefore, I never felt any fear. Now, I wish I would have looked down now to see how high I was and see how much fear I really would have had. I wish I, was more, I wish I had more guts to do that. But, but the lesson it taught me was that, well, you know, that was a Colorado lesson that I learned to stay my focus, keep focused on Jesus and what's going on around me. It doesn't make any difference. In fact, when I got to the point where I was down to two feet, I made a big jump out like I was going to go down, and I hit the ground, and I felt kind of stupid then uh, because, you know, they, <laughs> yeah, whatever, what was it? 170 feet. Wow. Don't tell me that, Lord. So I'm getting scared again. But that four feet, it's all I focused on. It's all I focused on. So Jesus says, first of all, there's no consequence for disobedience. Just understand that. Um, if there's no rebuke, then no consequence for, for, for disobeying a rebuke if there's none. So that's a good thing. So again, uh, this is a good church. It's a good message. So what is the promise to overcomers? Promise of overcomers is a crown of life and not to be hurt by the second death. Now, we all know what, probably know what it means to be victorious, right? But what is he talking about when it comes to the second death? This is, this is important. The second death that he's talking about is a death that only those that die without Christ will experience. When you die with Christ, a man that dies in Christ will never see death again. I'm saved today. I am going to die. My body is going to see, unless we're resurrected, I mean, unless we're raptured, we're going to die. But once I die as a Christian man, I will never see death again. However, if a man dies without Christ, that man will see a second death. Revelation chapter 20, this is called the white throne judgment. Then I saw, uh, verses 11 through 15, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not writ- found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the second death. It's the, de- it's the resurrection of the dead who died without Christ. They're resurrected at the end, at the end of the millennial reign, and they're judged again for all their sin, and at that time they are thrown into the lake of fire, which will be the second death. That is not a place you want to be. Who are these people? Revelation 21.8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The unbelieving. You know, we could say, I'm not vile, I'm not a murderer, I'm not sexually immoral, I don't have practice, I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a witch, um, and all the such. But you know what? If I'm just unbelieving, the unbelieving covers it all. The unbelieving person, unfortunately, will be in that, in that second death. What is the conclusion, then, of the matter for the Church of Smyrna? The conclusion is that we are to continue in our faith, fully obedient to the Word of God, uncompromising with this world. No matter how small the compromise is, no matter how tempting it is just to give in a little bit, stay faithful, stay true. And when you do that, God's promise is that we will receive the crown of life and that we will not be hurt by the second death. That's the conclusion of the matter. That's what it's all about. It's a good message, but yet we have things to do. We have work to be done. And when we do that, God is pleased with us. He's pleased. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you in Jesus' name to open our hearts and minds. I pray, Father, that you would come and that you would uh, open us to understand really what it, it means for us. Lord, it's easy to read history, and it's easy to read about people in the past and to see their dilemmas and their problems. But God, I pray that our hearts would be tuned into that. And that we would be convicted as we need to be, and we would be encouraged as we, as we need to be as well. God, that you would help us to see really what it needs for our hearts and our lives. So, Father, i just um, so thankful. I'm so thankful that you find people that love you joyful. And that, God, I, I want to be that sweet fragrance. I want to be that person in that church that God that reveres you and worships you and is a sweet fragrance under even under some persecution. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.